Hello, Hi Rock. Welcome to our daily devotional. We're continuing with our walk through Isaiah, and we're in Isaiah chapter 7. And just as a preface to what's going on, uh, we're going to just read from verse 7 through 17. And there's basically this invasion plan that's going on, which I'll explain in a minute. But it, you just need to know that the northern kingdom is planning to invade the southern kingdom when this word comes to the king of the southern kingdom, uh, Judah, from Isaiah. So we are in chapter 7, verses 7 through 17, where we read this. But this is what the sovereign Lord says. This invasion will never happen. It will never take place. For Syria is no stronger than its capital, Damascus, and Damascus is no stronger than its king, Razin. And for Israel, within 65 years, as for Israel, within 65 years, it will be crushed and completely destroyed. Israel is no stronger than its capital, Samaria, and Samaria is no stronger than its king, Pekah, son of Ramalia. Unless your faith is firm, I cannot make you stand firm. Later, the Lord sent this message to King Ahaz. Ask the Lord, your God, for a sign of confirmation, Ahaz. Make it as difficult as you want, as high as heaven or as deep as the place of the dead. But the king refused. No, he said, I will not test the Lord like that. Then Isaiah said, Listen well, you royal family of David. Isn't it enough to exhaust human patience? Must you exhaust the patience of my God as well? All right then, the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. By the time this child is old enough to choose what is right and reject what is wrong, he will be eating yogurt and honey. But before the child is that old, the lands of the two kings you fear so much will both be deserted. Then the Lord will bring things on you, your nation, and your family unlike anything since Israel broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria upon you. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I know that this, this passage is really confusing, and I didn't read the first part just because it's going to be even more confusing. So I'm just going to lay out what's going on. So we have the, the southern kingdom called Judah and the northern kingdom called Israel. Although, confusingly, Isaiah sometimes uses the name Israel to refer to the south as well. But when we're talking about the two kingdoms, Israel refers to the north. And Israel in the north has made an alliance with the kingdom of Syria, its neighbor, and they're trying to oppose the Assyrians. Now, that's another confusing thing that we have. A, you have Syria, which is different than Assyria. Assyria is this gigantic empire, whereas Syria is just this little nation. So the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria are trying to resist this empire of Assyria. And they want the southern kingdom of Judah under King Ahaz to join them. But King Ahaz doesn't want to do that. And so what they do is they come down south. So... Uh, Kingdom of Israel in the north and Syria joined together to invade the kingdom of south of the south to put their own king upon the throne, presumably so that they can force the south to join with them against Assyria. And God says through uh, Isaiah that this invasion will never happen. Don't worry about it. But then we have this thing which seems strange where Ahaz says he does not want a sign. God offers him a sign. You can ask for anything as high as heaven as confirmation that God is going to bring this about. And Ahaz says he doesn't want a sign, which seems like a faithful thing. He, he quotes the, this, this uh, command that we should not test the Lord. 
But instead, Isaiah responds by very negatively and pronounces that God's going to judge him, that after uh, the northern kingdom and after Syria have been conquered, Assyria is going to come for Ahaz as well. And it seems very strange. But a- but Isaiah is is aware of, and God is certainly aware of, a piece of information that we don't get in this passage. So if we read the historical books, if we read like, this is one of the prophetic books, this is one of the, so it's, it's not going into as much of the history, but if we read the historical books, we know that Ahaz was trying to make a backdoor deal with the kingdom of Assyria. So that's part of the reason he wasn't allying with the neighbors to the north. So the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom were both betraying each other by taking other allies that were their traditional enemies. You know, the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, I guess. And so Ahaz, while he's seeming like he's faithful, saying that he doesn't want to sign, it's because he's already making a deal with the king of, of Assyria. He's basically, uh, on the one hand, saying, I don't want to anger God, but at the same time, he's like, I don't really need God. I've got my own plans, and so I'm going to do my own thing. So then we get this promise, this verse 14. I mentioned yesterday that this is a really uh, hotly debated uh, verse. Uh, traditionally, it's been understood that this is a promise that ultimately refers to the coming of Jesus, that this, this would be Emmanuel, God with us and born to a virgin. There's been a lot of pushback historically on that um, from Jewish scholars and secular scholars as well, some Christian scholars as well, saying that the word Alma that's used for virgin there actually just means a young maiden. So it could mean virgin or it could just mean a young girl. And so a lot of people have tried to argue against this interpretation that this would be kind of a miraculous birth. And there's a lot of scholarship behind that. But recently, Rico and Gentry, these two uh, uh, language scholars, uh, put out this book. It's an entire hardback book on just this verse 14 about what does Alma mean? What does this word mean? And I I haven't read the whole thing, and I wouldn't try to summarize it in in any case. And so along with that, um, perhaps even more importantly, I think, is there's this historical thing called the Septuagint. Uh, Septuagint refers to the number 70, and according to legend, it was 70 scholars who spent 70 days to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, because about 200 years or so, by the time of about 200 years or so before Jesus, most uh, Jewish people spoke Greek as their language, especially those who had uh, who'd been uh, part of the diaspora, had lived uh, in, in other places, like in Alexandria, Egypt, for instance. And so they wanted scriptures in Greek. And so they, they, they went through this process of translating. And now Greek, whereas in Hebrew, Alma could mean young girl or virgin or both, in, in Greek, they could they had more words to work with on this and they could specify. So they had to make an interpretive choice. Was the original intention that it was just a young maiden or was the intention that it was a virgin? And they they chose, this is 200 years before Jesus, so they weren't trying to like appease any Christians or anything like this, but it's clear that they believed that the intention of this passage was that this was a miracle that was promising a virgin birth. They chose the word parthenos, which means in Greek means a, a virgin. So anyway, so that's about as clear as I can make this really, really messy, complicated passage. Like, like I said, two scholars wrote an entire book on this, and we're trying to convince, condense this down into a 15-minute devotional. Dave, I'm wondering what you uh, think about this passage, and especially about perhaps this uh, promise of uh, God being with us. All right, well, first, let's just all take a deep breath. That was a lot of information packed all in. It's kind of, I, I you know, it's, there's a lot of information. Um, I, and so I'm trying to think, okay, as most of us read this, as most Christians today are reading this, they're not going to have 
you know, at their fingertips, all the information we get from Chronicles and all the information that, uh, you know, kind of we, we can read the whole book of Isaiah in its entirety. Uh, and and you know, this is happening uh, over generations that we're seeing Isaiah write. I mean, this is multiple generations uh, after the beginning of the book. And so, uh, you know, Isaiah is, is chronicling this whole long story. Um, but why is it that he chooses then with all these generations that, you know, many, many years and decades of, 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 uh, of ministry, why does he choose these stories? Because he thinks there's actually something essential for all of us to carry, you know, going forward. Um, and, and I think that this, the, of course, right, that there was a reason we make the biggest deal about verse 14. Uh, the virgin will conceive a child, she will give birth to a son, and we will call him Emmanuel. God, which means God with us. And that already is such a remarkable promise, the idea that God would be with us. Uh, and I think that we who are Christians, we're so kind of accustomed to that kind of language uh, that it doesn't seem all that shocking, right? It's just, it's kind of what we hear every Christmas and what we sing every time we hear the Messiah or whatever. Um, but, but this is, a remarkable thing to say, right? God was was high and lifted up, uh, and and humans had broken away in the in the garden, and so the idea that God would come already, that God would be with us, that that God would be here and as a child, I mean, already there are just so many categories exploding, and God revealing this, I don't know, passion, humility, uh, it's just very surprising, and so you can imagine how people are hearing this. Uh, then going back to the, the, the whole virgin piece, I think, of course, it's emphasizing the miraculous nature of it, as you pointed out. Um, but it's also, and you know, there's a reason, and some of you have heard me talk about this before, but there's a reason why there's always a Mary statue out in front of every Catholic church. And Protestants like to say, oh, it's because they, they worship Mary. But that's not it. It's because Mary represents the church. Right in in kind of the, their their understanding because what happens is is God sort of comes into Mary in this kind of very strange way and and actually uses Mary to give birth to Jesus through whom He saves the world and then what the church then is is actually modeled on Mary that the church is is receiving God into us right the holy spirit of god is now in us and then jesus is given you know is given birth right through the church and so the church really is the place where we have this encounter with the living god and then we go out into the world uh, to bring good news and that's why the church represents mary but i think that the uh, this interesting piece about mary right she's a virgin who's going to be a mother and it's very rare, in fact, completely unique that there, there one person could be both of those. Uh, and I think it's interesting that that is actually what the church is supposed to be, both of those at the same time. And what I mean by that, and, and I think people tend to think of the church in one way or the other without being aware of it. Either we think of the church as the virgin, right? The church supposed to be pure and perfect and there should be no sin. And, you know, the, oh, the idea that, that any members would fall and members would be sinful and and hold it. I, who's that playing guitar up there this week? I think I saw him, you know, kind of drinking too much on a Friday night. And, you know, that, that idea, like those kind of people don't belong. Uh, the kind of people that belong are perfect. And 
And whenever we demonstrate ourselves to be imperfect, we, we no longer belong in the church. The church is the virgin. Uh, and so we're going to just kick out anybody who doesn't act right, think right, do right, whatever. On the other side is the church as mother, right? And you think about the mother who just, just wants all her kids to come home, right? Just this immense, incredible patience and love. And, and that's also what the church should be, right? There, there's a reality the church should be pursuing purity and should have this kind of longing for all of her children to come home. And I think that being able to see in Mary, right, that, that, that she is both of these at once is, is sort of the, this reminder that this is what we are called to be, not we as an individual per se, but we as, we as the church. Yes, we pursue holiness and we extend grace. We do both, right? We, we, we uh, you know, talk about this, this standard that we're aiming for, right? This, this level of, of, of purity and, and perfection that we long for and will not realize on this side of heaven. And so then, as all of us fall short, not just the guy you saw in the band, but every single one of us falls short, we extend grace. We receive the grace of God. And we find that at the church, too. And so I think that's what uh, I, what's why I think that this uh, this passage is so kind of uh, has been had such endurance. Uh, it's not just, wow, that was a neat trivia. And look, God did a miracle. It's another magic trick. And then look, it's Jesus. Uh, but in fact, that there's something paradigmatic for what we are supposed to be that's that's here, that God will bring new life to the world through a virgin who becomes a mother. And if you if you were to just uh, take truth as like being true or being faithful, um, like being true to your principles or your spouse or whatever, then Jesus comes to us full of grace and truth. And so he, he embodies both those very same things, that purity and that, that grace. Right. Amen. Well, John, would you want to close us a prayer today? Yeah, I would love to. Our good and gracious God, there's so much that we don't understand, we want to understand, we struggle to understand, but what we do understand is that you are faithful and you call us to be faithful as well. Lord, we thank, thank you that you come to us full of grace and truth. May we be like Mary was. Like, may we be people who are actively hold on to and seek to be pure, but also at the same time seek to be full of grace, reaching out to everyone to bring people home. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Friends, as we go out on our day, let's be like Mary, seeking purity and extending grace. I look forward to seeing you tomorrow.